This is Live from the Table, recorded at the World Famous Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. And we're coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog, and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network, Dan Natterman here uh, with Noam Dorman, owner of the World Famous Comedy Cellar, and with Periel Ashenbrand is with us. She is the show's producer. She is, how do you describe her? She's more than just a producer. She is, I guess she's Gnome's foil would be the best way to phrase it. My foil? Yes. yes. Can you speak into the microphone, please, Gnome? My foil? <laughs> and we have comedy seller, regular, and, and a veteran of this podcast, Mike, spelled M-Y-Q in stylized fashion. Mike Kaplan. Black. He is a comic and a podcaster. You can find his podcast, Broccoli and Ice Cream, wherever podcasts can be found. What's the significance of broccoli and ice cream? Uh, one conversation I have is about the work of people's life, the broccoli, and the other about the joy that they experience when they're not working, the ice cream. Oh, well, nice. and I think that's very poetic. I think, Thank you. Did you make that up? Yeah. I think that for some people, the ice cream and the broccoli is the ice cream. That, oh, the it, work, it very often. If I, you're lucky, it's oh, just yeah. all ice cream. Absolutely. I have comedians on all the time who are like, I don't have anything I do when I'm not working. But, you know, I, I try to get to it. What's your broccoli? Uh, I mean, you know, comedy, music, uh, self work, figuring out broccoli you know, or your ice. cream. That's the you know, the broccoli, the, the, the working. I guess like right now talking with you is my broccoli, you know, <laughs> thank the, you. The What's challenging work, uh, you know, when I get to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. This should be ice cream, but uh, oh yeah, it, it's both. It's you know, this is an ice cream flavored broccoli or vice versa. But yeah, when I'm when I'm not working, I enjoy you know playing music, listening to music, meditating, enjoying time with friends, loved ones. You know, I could go on. Love Groundhog Day. I have a friend George in New York who saw he thought he saw Bill Murray on the streets of New York. He was like Bill Murray. He yelled it at him, and so that guy who he yelled at looked back and was like, nope. <laughs> and my friend George went home all sad. He's like, I thought it was Bill Murray. Next day, turns on the TV, sees a talk show. Bill Murray's the guest. It was that guy. It was exactly that guy. He's like, man. So Bill Murray is such a great actor. <laughs> he was able to convince my friend George that he was not Bill Murray. Like, <laughs> unbelievable, Bill Murray. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for clapping for how great an actor I said Bill Murray was. <laughs> What a great story. What a story about Bill Murray, I just told you. And about my friend George. Why did I make it about George? It could have been about me. I could have said, I saw him. But I'm not a liar, number one. Number two, I don't want you guys thinking I'm the kind of guy who yells Bill Murray at Bill Murray. Because I don't do that. I wouldn't do that. If I saw Bill Murray on the street, I would yell like, Phil, Phil Connors. And then I'd run around the block and yell it again, run around the block and yell it again and again and again and again. Have somebody film it. Call it Groundhog Day 2. So... Now we have a few minutes before uh, Sean Walensky gets here, who's uh, who's uh, uh, our, our uh, I guess principal guest. Well, I guess non comedian guest, non comedian yeah. guest. But uh, as far as what to talk about, Till and I give you a choice of three things. Ooh, uh, and then you know you can you can you can veto all of them. But Love one choices. is what's up with Mike. Oh, hey. Number two is Joe Rogan and gun control. Mm. And number three is Dan Natterman's latest hypochondriacal scare. <laughs> um, I'd like to hear. Well, maybe we could talk about Joe Rogan and gun control when Sean Wilens gets on because he might be interested. I haven't heard. Oh, yeah. I'm very curious to know what that scale is. There's something is. new. Yeah. But uh, I think Dan Natterman's latest hundrico. I, well, I think it's that. I, I, I mentioned eye, right? to yeah. you uh, yesterday, I have something below my eye. It's Ooh. a red mark, and you can see it. No, I think you can see this Periel. Yeah. Um, 
Nicole, can we zoom in on this? Okay, go ahead. That's it's per- below that's my perfect. it's below my left eye. I discovered it this weekend. I was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Didn't think much of it. But as what happens when you're in a hotel room with little to do, you know, this is art imitating life, because if you read my book, Iris yes. Hero before COVID, yeah. he was obsessed <laughs> with skin moles and so forth. And, uh, you know, cancer. So so anyway, so basal cell carcinoma. I've diagnosed myself with oh. basal cell carcinoma. Wow. For the love is, of God, which is a very relatively uh, um, mild cancer that doesn't really kill anybody. How long you been a dermatologist yourself? <laughs> uh, since uh, Google came can, out. Can I tell you something? My grandmother was a nurse for a dermatologist's office for yeah. 37 years. And something that she did when kids would come in with warts that I talk about this on stage a little bit, but this is like just the legit thing. She would tell them that she'd like to purchase their wart. She'd give them a quarter. I don't know if it ever was inflation, but the kid would take the quarter. She's like, go home. When you wake up in the morning, the wart will be gone because I bought it. And it would happen. It would just like by the power of positive thinking, like they're like, oh, my wart's going to go away. And so truly you by obsessing about things being there and going wrong might in fact be creating a problem. It might or it might be the most. (laughs) Well, I do not believe that you don't think the mind affects the body do i have to in order to say call bullshit on that story i have to think the mind doesn't affect the body yeah oh, i'm just asking your question first i yeah. think the mind affects the body i okay. don't believe you can buy a wart to disappear in 24 hours with a quarter oh i mean so you so you're calling my grandmother a liar yes that's what i'm saying there. no first of all i absolutely believe that story We're calling her a storyteller raconteur mm-hmm. so go ahead forget your thing so do you have cancer i don't know i have to you know in this let me see in this town, it's so hard to get to get a doctor's appointment. I mean, I have a dermatologist, but, um, you know, you can't get a hold of them. But in any case, um, they're out sunning themselves. Yeah. I, I can send you to a good dermatologist. Well, I have a guy. No, but... no, no. But she'll see you like okay. tomorrow. OK, OK. Um, <laughs> I don't think you have cancer. Dan. Oh, and but... how long have you been a dermatologist? Well, but I will say my wife, my son, when he was young, this, this, my, this fucking uh, Mike is, is going crazy. My son, oh, when he, it's probably your sounds fine to us. Yeah, sounds fine to my son. I thought he meant you. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> my son, when he was young, had a thing like a and it looked like a pimple. And my wife was insisting it wasn't a pimple. And she diagnosed it as a vascular blah, 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 blah. And she went straight to the specialist who handles this thing on the East Coast. And she talked away to the appointment. And doctor says, this is amazing. Sometimes people go months without getting to me. Doctors misdiagnosis all the time. So maybe you do have cancer because she 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 analyzed it on the Internet and uh, she was right from pictures. Well, look, it's not like people don't get cancer, especially when you're in your 50s. You know, okay, but mean, you don't, it's, it's not like I, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm 15 years old and then you no, dismiss it. But it, it doesn't just show up like that. Like you don't just well, get into the Internet. Uh, yes, it does. It can. This particular form can. Is yes. under your eye a commonplace form? It's a very commonplace for basal cell carcinoma. Yes, it is. Um, I don't like where this is going at all. What's going? <laughs> I'm going to go to dermatologist okay. and we'll figure it out one one way or the other. But but this is where my mind is now. And this was Noam's choice of topic. <laughs> now, the, the good news is it's a particular form of cancer, if that's what it is, is very, very treatable. Well, well you called it Dan's hypochondriacal <laughs> thing. So I thought. <clears throat> I thought that meant that you knew it was crazy. But you're, not a hypo- oh. you're not a hypochondriac. Well, I think you have cancer. Yeah. Well, we don't know that yet. You but, intellectually. But but hypo- I think the average person, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. He would see this. He would say, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I'll make an appointment. I won't worry about it until then. I don't know. Is that how the average person would react? I don't know. Dan, can I ask you a question? Uh, but, but me, I'm the whole time on the Internet all fucking day looking at pictures of basal cell and trying to convince myself that it doesn't look like what I have. have but you, have but you ever, failing. Have you ever thought you had an STD? 
Uh, yeah, I guess so. Have you ever been right about any of your hypochondria? Yeah, but nothing severe. Nothing at a severe. Like question. I was right when I had frozen shoulder. I was right. Oh, my girlfriend shoulder. has frozen shoulder right now. It's awful. Well, how old is she? She's uh, just turned thirty nine. Yeah, it's about. Well, it's, it's a, a little, little, little on the young little side. On the young side. But yeah, my wife claims to have frozen jaw, but I. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I'm skeptical. She just has <laughs> frozen heart. Uh, uh, damn. When? Did, how long did your frozen shoulder last? It lasts about nine months. Yeah, she's had it for more than. And then I, it just goes away. Like I went to the doctor. I went. Like they, they gave me with the insurance, gave me a physical therapy session, but the physical therapist says, yeah, this is not going to do that much for you. Yeah. But your insurance pays for it. Sure. Uh, which seems like a scam to me, but, but you know, um, she said just like nine months, it'll, it'll go. My, wife has, my, my wife's had it for 17 years. Uh, <laughs> I, I, these don't look like we're looking at pictures of basil cell. Uh, you, you can see Maybe that, right? you can pull that up. Um, these do not look like what you have. Well, that's squamous. Well, the one that's that... squamous. <laughs> What's squamous? Another kind of carcinoma. All right. Yeah. So, okay. So now, now you want to introduce us to the Rogan thing? What time is Sean well, coming? Uh, Rogan, apparently, you know, after, because we had yet another match. Time. And we talked about Buffalo last time. And then, of course, now there's, oh, I don't know how you pronounce it, Uvalde, Texas. Oh, I've only been reading Uvalde. it, so I don't know. Uvalde. Yeah, I also have only been reading it. So uh, there was a, a far more ghastly, well, I don't know, it was more ghastly. It was kids. So in that sense, it's much more ghastly. ghastly. And it was more numerous, I think, more victims, right? More victims than there were kids. So, so, um, so Rogan was on his podcast, you know, at saying that, well, they can't they shouldn't take guns away from people because then only criminals will have guns. That's roughly what he said. I mean, you could you could call maybe if you want to watch uh, if, if Nicole can can pull it up for the no. clip or not. But that's essentially what he said. It's an old talking point. Obviously, it's nothing that he came up with. Um, uh, there's a lot to that because. Not that anybody's saying we're going to ban guns entirely. I mean, I mean, some people are saying that. Should ban AR-15s entirely, full stop. Like, it's not even a question. I'd like to be able to better check who's getting them. So not taking them away, but not giving them out as freely to people who haven't, you know, for, I know this is an old, old one, but uh, to drive a car, you need to prove that you're capable and uh, you don't need to prove any such thing for guns. Well, the gun people will say that the, driving cars not in the constitution to what extent it's the constitution driving them or the constitution used being used as an excuse i don't know also i feel like we are now you know we're here uh we didn't create the constitution the, uh, the somebody pointed me to the old jim jeffries bit about gun control in which he talks about uh how people want it's an amendment and people want to you know potentially just make more amendments amend like the amendment is changing of the constitution like they wrote the constitution then they were like okay now here's an amendment to it. So I feel like talking about what they said years ago compared to what would be, you know, good, healthy, productive and reasonable now, like it can't just be, well, they said a thing, so we can't do anything. So everybody hold on. As far as I understand it, there has been an assault weapons ban or a semi-assault, whatever they call it, AR-15s. And it, it was not disqualified constitutionally. It is not handguns are protected by the constitution in your home. I don't know what extent of what was protected, but I do not believe that the reason we don't have a law against AR-15s is the Second Amendment. I think that's they, that law was that law uh, was sunsetted, the sunset on that law, and politically, these laws are not viable in the in many states. The, but, pe but, the people but, don't want to. What it's not it's not constitutional. But to what extent is the Second Amendment and the idea that the founding fathers said these things influencing people's view? of gun control. In other words, if the fact if the Constitution never said anything about guns, would people have views like they have today? 
would their views be similar? I, I think the urge to want a gun in your home to defend yourself uh, is is wholesome. Actually, <clears throat> I don't have a gun to defend myself, but um, if I there's plenty of places on planet Earth that if I lived, I would think it was very reasonable to have a gun to protect myself. An AR-15, maybe not. But can I just say say one thing because you know. I should preface it by it's so hard for me to imagine even talk about this thing because I, mean, I did break down and cry a little bit about it when I was talking to Juanita about it because you picture your own children there. And if you have children there, it's just the, 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 and this is before I even heard the gruesome details of that story. But having said that and trying not to be just, you know, come to, to just opinions by the fact that something is emotional. It's a minuscule number of people that are killed in mass killings and even more minuscule that are killed where they are 15. It's 0.4% of all shootings or mass killings and something like 100 people killed a year where they are 15s and, and not all not all in mass shootings. And and obviously, for instance, even in this horrible case, he, he was in there for an hour. So although he used an AR-15, it's uh, not at all uh, any reason to think that he couldn't have killed maybe all the kids or many of the same number with some sort of uh, pistol. We should be grateful guns. for all the kids that he didn't kill. So, so uh, wait, wait, let me say, but the, but the, the fact is that there's 19,000 homicides every year. And um, each one of those homicides or most of them, some of them maybe, you know, contributed to their fact that they're murdered, but many, many of them, are just as tragic as any other soul that's lost. And uh, the president doesn't give a speech about those homicides. And uh, you know how many young children are going to be killed in Chicago in the next 12 months? And uh, not in an unpredictable school, of thousands of schools in 50 states, but in a, in a time and place which is very, very predictable, particular neighborhoods, particular areas where, where it could be stopped with aggressive policing. Uh, many, many, just the defund the police movement alone has a has a death toll to it, empirically proven already, which dwarves um, dwarfs this um, this latest school shooting. So there's something very uh, uh, dangerous about emotional reactions, which can lead you to to you know not the the smartest reaction. And I, I compared this to you now you can see Schindler's List. And it can it can literally reduce you to tears because there's a narrative and there's pictures and there's all the things that play on the human psychology. And then you could read in a history book about the six million Jews that died and you can literally find yourself falling asleep like you can't even stay awake because it's so boring. But that's not but that's we but that's how emotions are. And as much as I am so moved and I want to never have another school shooting, of course, um, there's something perverse about the way we have so inured to the 19,000 other homicides, the way we take no measures, the way no politician makes that their cause. And as a matter of fact, plenty of politicians line up behind policies that are predictably exacerbating these, these homicides. And that makes me very angry. I've said many times on the show, nobody speaks for the thousand people or whatever it is that are going to die in Chicago over the next 12 months. Nobody, there's not a single politician who makes that their cause. They're very concerned about AR-15s in Texas. 
Does a fucking Illinois politician concerned about what's the, the people that be murdered in his state? I don't see that. And, that. and that bothers me. But having said that, I'm not a Second Amendment guy. Take the AR-15s away. I don't I don't I don't I don't not I'm not advocating keeping AR-15s. Don't mistake what I'm saying. But I feel that we are we're, we're just reacting viscerally to this horrible thing. And we're putting all our bandwidth into trying to bring down what is already a tiny number of murders. And, I, and it's almost as if we care more about the perpetrators. That's really what's fueling our agenda. It's in the South. It's white people. It's whatever, whatever it is. That, that's what really gets our goat. It, it seems like that's what bothers us more than who gets killed. I, there was a video today on Twitter of this uh, Asian guy just getting the shit kicked out of him. You see that by these guys who no. just had him up against the thing and just pummeling him. Nobody cares. Nobody cares because it's not really about the Asian guy getting beaten up. It's about the profile of the person beating him up. That's what, that's, that's what activates everybody. But this wasn't a white guy beating these Asian everybody. guys. Everybody? That's what activates the, uh, the uh, critical mass of the media and... Eh. And that's what turns something into a into a national story at the front of our mind, as opposed to something which just passes overnight. In my opinion, if this had been a, if this had been some white thugs beating up this Asian guy, it would be all we'd be talking about today. But in a healthy world where it was really just about this poor Asian guy who got beaten up, we'd be talking about it doesn't matter who beat him up. But we don't do that. So right, let's bring on Sean Wallens. Sean Wallens, are you with us? He's not here yet. Oh, I thought I thought I saw some. I'm sorry. So you want to answer me? Go yeah, a couple of quick things. I've got some numbers for you. So uh, no emotions necessary. Yeah. Do you know that in 2020 suicides were more than half of the gun deaths? I did know that. So that, I feel like you're talking about murders in yeah. a way that if you, you should be talking about, let's reduce reducing the number of suicides will reduce the number of gun deaths overall. And the, I, the part that I just liked it before, you know, things I'm, go I'm off. I'm less bothered by suicides than I am. Well, yeah, most people are less bothered by suicide. homicides. Yeah. Uh, and I think that back to the Constitution, like part of the amendment is a well, well regulated is a part of well, it we, for sure that and that's what people are talking about. People want more. I think the majority of Americans do want more regulations on guns and the politicians don't. Now, now what about the fact that, for instance, in New York and Chicago or, or, or I mean, do you. Do you believe that by outlawing something you can really prevent? Like, is Joe Rogan crazy? Like, I mean, yes. we're trying to get rid of fentanyl, right? Well, first of all, no one's what? saying ban guns, but. But let's say we did. There's 400 million guns in the country already. Criminals get, like, does the mafia buy their guns legally? Do street thugs buy their guns legally? Do, well, do I, people buy their fentanyl legally? Like, like, how do you outlaw things? By the way, oh, I'll just, just to go back. More people are killed every year with blunt instruments than AR-15s. Just so you know, that's that's how like just like people get hit over the head with a plate or a frying pan. More people die like right. that. What about an anvil or an anvil? I mean, it's so that, point- that, that's what a minuscule number of, of, of murders. These AR-15s contribute to viscerally. They're impossible to stomach. But just so you know what the problem that we're talking about is. It's actually quite a tiny problem. Okay, I mean, it's Isn't it the it, number it, one well, cause uh, look, as well for gun death? Like other, guns are the number one cause of death for children. The fact of the matter is, yeah, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because of COVID, but uh, yes. Other it, countries. It, it's, it's unacceptable that there's so many deaths. On the other hand, we have more stabbings than any other country too. Other countries do seem to have uh, the ability to, to at least vastly reduce the number of killing. Now they, probably politically, we couldn't do this here, but you know, other countries, you got to register your gun every year. They got to, 
they, they make sure you still have it. If you, if you, I'm not sure what country this is. I think in Japan, if you don't have, a, oh yeah, we can. If you don't have a gun, if you ha if you have a gun, you can have a gun, but the government has to know you have the gun. And every year they'll be like, show us your gun. And if you ain't got it, Look, you a, go to jail. Right. So why can't we do that? Because it, politically we can't do that. But the point is, we can't do it. But I'm, but but we don't know where the what's the chicken and what's the egg. We have a violent culture. If you if you look like 538.com did a, you know, broke it down by. We can't even talk about it, but the, but the fact is that there are there are there are whole pockets of America that have unlimited access to guns with very, very, very low uh, murder rates. But I actually saw the exact opposite in a chart. Well, I sure. can show. It I you. also Please. just read something about how ca in Canada they're saying we see the same movies that you guys see. We play that you guys see. We play the same video games. We listen to the same music. We don't have the death tolls with guns that you guys have. You know why? Because we don't have fucking guns. But that's not the reason they don't have the murderers that we have. Well, the we wouldn't have the murderers that we have either if we didn't have as many means for their. We would have some some fewer for sure. Oh, there's a lot of problems. And so I think it sounds like you're saying there's so many problems. So we might not well, might as well not. I mean, solve no, I mean, in an ideal world, you said you believe guns in the home are wholesome. So in your ideal world, I, I said the the the, the, the uh, desire to protect yourself with a gun is a wholesome. So in your OK, well, in your desire. ideal world, what would be the limitations on gun ownership? I mean, it also feels idealistic to say that because the rate of people injuring themselves and their loved ones in a home is much higher than the number of people protecting themselves from outside. So here so here is a chart from 538.com. Now I'm going to take the, the I'm going to risk actually reading this out loud. OK, but no, you have to promise me that you will not. Back I will not back it up. The show. So 538.com is a, is a pretty left wing outfit. Right. So I'm, I'm just recent. Now, and 538, what I'm going to read to you now, in my opinion, I mean, it's about statistics. So it's just statistics. numerical, empirical, yeah. so it, neither left yeah. nor right. This is, in my opinion, what I'm reading to you now is a national tragedy that, that a, a, a progressively minded person would want to attack with all his might. I understand it can be twisted into be something to the opposite. But I'm just telling you from my heart, that's not the way I mean it. Okay. So, uh, murders per hundred thousand people. Canada has one point five. Canada, that's my phone. Canada has one point five murdered out of a hundred thousand people. What would you guess the United States white community has? Canada has what? Well, you're one point five out of a hundred thousand people in Canada are murdered every year. Every, I believe it's every year. Yeah. What would you guess the uh, white number is? I'm not even going to guess. With all the guns that we have all through the South in, in, in the lily white states. What do you think their statistic is? Three. Obviously, since you're asking the question, it's about the same. 2.5. Oh, yes. So with, almost with, double. With all, well, you, it's less than double. But listen, when you start- Almost double. double. Right. Yeah. But when you have minuscule numbers, anybody in st statistics will tell you- But we don't. We have 300 million people. So that's right. considerable you, point number. is that out of 100,000 people, one more person. That's very statistically relevant. It's well out of a hundred thousand. It's it's not so. It's like saying cancer went from one out. Uh, breast cancer struck one out of a hundred thousand people. Now striking 200, 200, 100,000 people. Yes, it's a hundred percent increase. However, no one's. It's still not enough to make anybody that worried about cancer. If if you tell me something happens. What about once, Dan? If you tell me something happens once out of a hundred thousand or twice out of a hundred thousand times. I'm going to like that. Well, I'm not worried about either of those scenarios. Okay. But That's that was tiny. just, that was just white people in That's America. White people. Now, okay. Uh, what do you think it is for black people? Higher. 
20. 20, 19.4, I'm sorry, 19.4. Um, so, which brings the United States up to an overall, and, and Hispanic is 5.3, United States overall. So what we have is here- Is there an Asian breakdown? What we have here, they don't even, they don't, even, Asians don't even make the list. So what we have here is, um, so we see, media, and by the way, the, the lowest country- less guns are more Asian. The highest country after the United States black is Lithuania at seven. So what we have here is a tragic cultural problem going on here that cannot be explained well i mean if you were to tell me well i guess because you know black people can't handle guns and white people can i mean that's that would be a these are the people being killed right yes but we know that virtually everybody as you know we don't know anything yes we do it's tell, every, anybody read the statistics I, i'm not going to take the time now because it's a well-worn statistic everybody knows this I, everybody people, doesn't know well i will bet you a thousand dollars that, that what get that that every that I will that tell every you, black person was killed. No, that overwhelmingly person? above ninety percent. I'd people, really like every, for you to uh, get the, de the okay, details. Okay, I will look at. I will. Look, well, that that is true. From everything I've read, that people tend to be murdered when by the people murdered, around by, them. By the by people their, that yeah. by the people of the same color. Murder interracial murders far rarer than murder white on white, black on black, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what I'm saying. So you could talk about gun control. But and that's fine. But let's not pretend we don't have deeper problems than gun control. This is why this is why more people are stabbed in America than other countries, too. Well, certainly there's no argument that you could do far less damage with a knife than with an AR-15 or any other sort of gun. Right? Also, this seems like great news for all the white people who are terrified uh, very irrationally. I feel like this would be great news. Like the the it seems to me that it's mostly the white people that we hear and see that are uh, like, we need to keep these guns in our house for our protection. But like, objectively speaking, white people are the in the least danger. They're the, the most fearful unreasonably, would you say? Well, if those statistics are correct, then that would be, I guess it's hard to argue that point. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering how much, how much of people's desire to have a gun in the home is to protect themselves and how much of it is just the culture is just steeped. I don't know the answer to this. Question, oh yeah. But I mean, just, I just, I don't understand it myself. Okay, so I, here it is. But, but the people just love guns. I think beyond, beyond simply their practical uses. So, so actually it's, it's worse for your case. Okay. 15.8% of white victims were killed by blacks last year. Okay. So that killed, and 8.6% of black victims were killed by whites. So it actually skewers, it actually, if you, if you want to figure that it, it actually skewers, skews the 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 deficit even more greatly so um that's that's the statistics so this is a natural and well and that is what bothers me so like like to me as a rational person if, if i'm going to honestly talk about murder in america and guns and all of it and try to and try to hammer out a strategy to save lives we're going to have to talk about the reality of what's going on, what neighborhoods is happening, what, 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 what programs need to address cultural problems, where, what more policing can do. I mean, these are complex issues, right? Or we can just reduce it to AR-15s. Or we can do both. We can try. Well, to you have can't really do both. That's the thing. Like, it's hard. There's only limited bandwidth. 
you're not going to get Congress to get all up and put all the energy into getting rid of AR-15s and or and then also figure out what's happening in Chicago. It's going it's to be one or the other. And it just and it really just rubs me the wrong way at the same time that we know this defund the police movement has contributed to so many other people being killed. But also, don't you think Mur murder spiking in New York City now, right? Yeah. Are there more guns than there used to be? Probably. No, they're not. Murder went down. Were there fewer guns when murder went down? OK, I don't know, but I do know this. You do know. I do know that the laws and the check marks and the checks and the balances and the things that are in place for somebody to be able to gain access to these guns is deeply, deeply flawed. And there is absolutely no good reason for it. It is inexcusable that an 18 year old should be able to walk in and buy a fucking AR-15 and go into a school and murder 10, 19, 20, even one child. There's abs. I mean, um, Chicago, I agree that that is a, a catastrophic failure on the part of the government and that something needs to be done urgently. Not just Chicago. It's, it's, you know, okay, 19, but you were talking, yeah. 19,000 homicides. But you were talking about Chicago. Yes, I agree with that. But I do not think that these things are mutually exclusive. You can't buy Sudafed, Noam. Question is, if somebody gets it in their head that they want to go commit murder, yes, yeah, so, some of these things are, are, are spur of the moment and impulsive and they run into the gun store. And if only the gun store had been closed, you know, or if there was a two day, maybe they period, which off. I think is what people yeah, are at. They call it would and it a wouldn't two day happen. waiting yeah. period? or whatever they're advocating yeah, yeah, no, or a no, background check or this yes. and that. Yes. But you would reduce some murders and you, you can you can move and, it. And, you can move it inches and moving it inches is certainly worthwhile because I like moving it unless you believe that that there's positive benefits to AR 57s that uh, 15s. But, Air 15. but but no, what, what I believe is that there is a. Uh, I mean, we can't you can't do everything at once. I mean, but the gun people will say, yes, maybe we can save a few lives from mass murders. But the 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 the, the right of the citizens to own these these weapons uh, has advantages. You know, if God forbid the government ever becomes tyrannical, whatever they'll say. I, I, can I spell it out? To me, there's something sick. I don't know how to put it. We see, and Mike, we, we see non-white people, forget about these kids, non-white people dropping like flies. I mean, a lot of the kids that were killed was- Well, they were- they were, they were about 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 Every day, every day. And, um, and there's just something deeply wrong with the way we don't want to confront this problem for fear of- being called politically, you know, of, of saying something wrong or, or being, God forbid, uh, having your motives impugned. I, I was critical of Mayor Bloomberg for stop and frisk because I thought he carried it well, well beyond the, the law of diminishing returns, you know, triple or quadruple what Giuliani did with relatively few additional lives saved. But there was always something about him I did respect because I did feel like his attitude was, I don't give a shit what you say. I'm saving lives. I know I'm saving lives. And that's the highest calling. Call me whatever you want. But I know in my heart, the only reason I'm doing this is, be, is to save lives. And, and I remember there was a column. He 
statistically pointed to, I believe it was true, that 7,000 murders had been avoided in New York City, something like that, after stop because of stop and frisk. 7,000 lives saved. And we're like, no, no, get rid of that. Get rid of that because, you know, that, that's problematic. 7,000 lives. We don't, even, we don't even have the debate. Like, where do you draw the line between what is clearly uh, unacceptable? You're an innocent, wholesome black guy and you're, and you're being harassed by the police. This is, this is no way to live. We can't have a country like that. I get that. You know, I've always said that. Every, every black friend I had had a story of being humiliated by the cops. I never take that lightly. And yet 7,000 lives, mostly black, saved. And, and the way we handle it is, uh, let's not even talk about it. Let's just pretend it's not even happening. And let's just, let's just concentrate on, on you know, the, the next headline about uh, an AR-15. And I agree with you, we need, to, we need to address it. But there's something deeply wrong, I think, with the fact that we don't react We've, the 19,000 lives is like reading the Holocaust book about the 6 million. It does not activate us and it puts us to sleep. This Uvalde, well, just, this Uvalde with- tragedy is Schindler's List. It's, re, it's a real tragedy, but there has to be something more than simply the emotional reaction to the viscerally difficult story to take. There also has to be an objective reaction to, wait a second, that's a tiny number and there's 19,000 that we're not reacting I just, to I just want to... I just want to uh, say that I disagree with the analogy because since when is a book about the Holocaust boring? Certainly, uh, Diary of Anne Frank wasn't boring, or Eloise L's Night wasn't boring. No, they're they're not boring when you can personalize it into a narrative with a picture and a story. Anne Frank is a compelling story. Six million died. That's just a, it's just a history book. It's dull. The nineteen thousand homicides. It's dull. These poor children, the story, the killer went in. He shot them one by one. There was a 911 call. The murder, the mother went in. I mean, he started, literally you get ch- choked up thinking about it. This is this is real stuff. What, what about uh, what about putting money into uh, uh, school gu- cops at schools, guards? I'm, I'm for everything that would save lives, including the school shootings. I hope nobody misunderstands. But I, I feel like there are so many poor children and again let me say i said it before school sh- there's i don't know thousands of schools in this in this in the country it's very difficult to pre- predict which school is the most likely to be hit next but in but, other but, places but, this but, does not happen but every day no it actually does happen not not even every remotely. Day, no that's not true yes, talking it about is other true. countries yeah no in other countries it does happen but uh, it happens once here, once there, once there. Europe, Europe stats are Europe taken as a whole, uh, are, I think, are exceed America, I believe, per capita in terms of mass shootings over a certain period of time. When you divide the countries individually, then it, uh, what's the, the population of Europe as a whole? It's comparable to. Is uh, it the same as the United States? I, I think probably, probably much more. Well, I, I, I did would, a lot of research. I'm going to guess that the, you're talking about Western Europe or Europe, uh, the entire. I'm going to guess sure. the continent of Europe has a con. Has a has a population of six hundred twenty five million in the in the in, no 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 I'm going to amend that five hundred and thirty two million people uh, on the continent of Europe. This includes Eastern Europe. Uh, the U.S. You, is uniquely terrible at protecting well, children uh, from. Do you have a, you have a guess, Mike Kaplan? Oh, uh, population of Europe. I don't. Are you are you looking that up, Noam? No, but I'm going to read you the stat about it Europe. Up. I'm going to have to look that up. 
Um, I thought it was an interesting talking point because if you're going to compare Europe to America, you have to get the population. They're, they're pretty similar. I remember from comparing COVID. The population, I was right the first time, 747 million people. That's, that's no, probably Western Europe is what they talk about. I don't think. Um, so it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's more than double the population of the United States. Sure. So if it has the same amount of mass, mass shootings, then you would have to say it has half the rate. Um, so where is the uh, article? Does the United States have more mass shootings than other countries? It depends on the data. Average mean annual death rates per million people for mass shootings, 2009 to 2015. Norway is number one, Serbia, France, Macedonia, Albania, Slovakia, Switzerland, Finland, Belgium, Czech Republic, then the United States. That's if you take uh, the, um, the average of these countries. But there's different statistical ways. That's a mean number. If you use and, the median. And that's also mass only murders, right? Yeah. So, so there's different statistical ways to analyze this. And depending on you, how you analyze it, you can put America as number one. Though I read some convincing refutations of doing it that way. But, but having said that, even at its worst, it's not quite our perception of it. We, we kind of perceive that this doesn't even exist elsewhere in the world. Well, but, what's the list where it doesn't divide them into mass murders and less than that? Oh, no, America's homicide rate is yeah. way, way, way more. But this is what I'm saying. Yeah. We need to address that. Sure. Um, I agree with you. There yeah. is a cultural shift that is necessary. We need to. I mean, would. I mean, I, like, would white people permit their children to be victims of murders the way the way we allow other colored people like we would flood the we we demand that they flood our neighborhoods with cops i think and well, our, our neighborhood our neighborhoods basically are flooded with cops i don't know i don't know no, listen nobody knows what the answer is i don't claim to know what the answer is actually. i don't even know what your question is well the question is how oh, this you, all started with joe rogan's statement that how do you how do you bring murders down and how do you, and they seem to be ticking up. How do you act rationally? Listen, after nine, this is a perfect example. After 9-11, we, we demanded action. And as we know, in retrospect, a lot of that emotional reaction wasn't that smart. It wasn't that effective. It got us into situations. Um, you could make the argument now that maybe even going to Afghanistan was a bad idea but the but the urge to do something was so overwhelming um but i mean whose urge are you talking about i feel like you're talking about in very specific like generalities when it serves you and i'm not sure when you say the, everyone everything the like urge of almost any normal person who saw well, those people it wasn't to, burned to death but it wasn't the emotional reaction of the average citizen that led george w bush to invade iraq well uh, I don't know if that's right. I mean, it certainly. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that it definitely is, and I'm saying that I don't them, think it, it is. It certainly has something to do with the fact that the country overwhelmingly supported him. I don't think that's. But so. it definitely, it definitely had to do with invading Afghanistan. It definitely had to do with the Patriot Act. It definitely had to do with a, 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 a decrease decrease in civil liberties. All things that I supported, and and some of them I still support. I'm not even necessarily uh, saying uh, that they were all wrong. I'm not even saying invading Iraq was wrong. I'm just saying that a lot of that George W. Bush is saying it, though. He, he said that by accident. I yeah, because he's been thinking about it for 20 years. 
You don't know that. I mean, you I know it more than you know whatever you're saying. How could you say such a thing? Because I'm basing it on what he said, and you're saying he you missed, don't know what he was thinking. He was, All we know is what he said. He miss. He was talking about Ukraine, and the whole the whole speech was about Ukraine. And then he said he he misspoke and said Iraq. Joe Biden has misspoken and said a million dumb things. I've never claimed well, that's what it, he, that's it what he Freud, really was. Was it a Freudian slip? Is is the question? It could have been a Freudian slip. We have no yeah. way. You don't know that. It's very poignant. But by the way, do, is our guest Steve Valens coming or is he? Uh, it's Sean, Sean Valens. He is. He lost track of time. I understand. I just spoke. Well, well, he's ironic for a historian. <laughs> he's living in the past. Yeah. <laughs> is he coming now? Yeah, he's uh, going upstairs. Um, but of course, the first thing I was thinking of is, oh, my God, this is the second time we've had him booked and he's oh. not coming. And how is this going to become my fault somehow? Yeah. Well, when you know, I, historians repeat themselves. Right. Yeah. But but so just to, to recap, I am not I, I hope they outlaw AR-15s. They're not going to. Why are you saying that? Because the states are fucking criminal. The, the states that uh, have these AR-15s legal culturally do not want them outlawed. They just don't. All of these people should go to jail, by the way, on the record. Which I people? Ev everybody who thinks that an AR-15 should be. By the way, I mean, <laughs> by the way, from what, intelligent what, argument. I, I'm not. It a is an intelligent. Just, argument. I'm not a gun person, to say the least. But from from what I've read, the AR-15 looks mean and looks like a, a military weapon. But there's many other weapons that look like hunting rifles that can do the same job all the AR-15 Get does. rid of all any, of them. Any rapid fire yes. weapon. Get rid of it. In, a, in, in a, my idea of a sane world, we would make it almost impossible for, for we don't, we, everyday people to get them. We, we okay, so we, you're agreeing with me. I'm agreeing with you, but I'm saying that it, it, it but is he still not, doesn't it like not, you. It is, <laughs> I'm saying it is not going to move the needle much on what to really be disturbing us, which is disturbing us, which is the thousands and thousands and thousands, including children, people being murdered every year. I don't hear anybody really caring about that. I, I don't hear it. Is it because you're yelling so much that you're not listening? <laughs> Am I yelling? OK, can we, can we let him in? Uh, Steve Willens, are you Sean, Sean, if you Sean, say that again, I'll, I'll, <laughs> get your AR-15 over you. Sean Willens, are you with us? He's joining. Sean Wilentz, while he's, he's uh, logging, while he's logging in, I'll do his introduction. Where, uh, but there, there he is. Uh, Sean Wilentz. Hi. Sean Wilentz is professor of American history. At but we can't hear you. Got to unmute your mic, sir, if you can. Well, I'll do the intro while whilst he's taking care of that. He is a professor of American history at Princeton University, or in the Flintstones, they called it Princeton U. Ah. Uh, Fred's alma mater, I believe. Okay. Uh, Am I unmuted now? You're, you're unmuted. unmuted. Thank you, sir. Or out. There oh, used man. to be a comedy club in Princeton. And the first time I went there, I thought it was going to be all professors and students. I expected tweed jackets. Not a not a single person from the town of Princeton was at that comedy club. It was all Which club from, was it? What was the name of the club? Catch a Rising Star in the Hyatt Hotel in Princeton. No kidding. Wow, that went by me. I would have been there to watch you. I ah. think that uh, it's still there. Anyway, <laughs> Sean Wilentz, author of numerous books, including well, this is interesting. He's a history professor, Bob Dylan in America, considering yes, Dylan's place in American cultural history. And he's currently at work on the triumph of American anti-slavery, a companion volume to the rise of American democracy, which will offer a comprehensive political history of the anti-slavery movement from the 17th century to 1865, the year of emancipation. 
welcome Sean Willens to our podcast. I am I'm delighted to be here. So let, let's start with Dylan. Uh, since uh, we actually, my father owned the place called the Cafe Fiend John in 1960, where Dylan. No went. kidding. Do you know that place? Did I know that place? First of all, it was the only place to hear Israeli folk music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and uh, the Fiend John was just around the block from everything else. The Fiend John was great. Yeah. So that was so Dylan was um, a, a regular guy. My, my yeah. father knew him and my father didn't uh, didn't admire his talent. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember as a little boy when uh, I would try to tell my father that Dylan was good. I'd say, what about blowing in the wind? Blowing in the wind is a good song. Right. And my father would say, I just don't believe he wrote it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like father, like son. I, I will say that uh, my father was a very fine musician, but I guess he'd only heard Dylan like. He wasn't a good harmonica player, and, and, he, and, and he didn't get Dylan. A lot of people don't. So they yeah. still don't. But, uh, you know, we do. We do. Now, when you say that there was only one place to see Israeli folk music, mm. sounds like XX Supply to me. <laughs> no, XX the Fiji, you know, they, they, they showed everybody. I mean, look, it was in the it was uh, near Bleecker and McDougal. There were a whole bunch of clubs there and the clubs were very eclectic with a lot of different things. They had comedy acts. They had, you know, you name it. But Israeli folk music was not a big deal in New York City, except in certain you know, neighborhoods, um, certainly not in Greenwich Village. So um, but no, it was great. It was it was the, lots of good stuff. I mean, there was a traditional stuff that, you know, that the likes of Theo Bikel would play. Um, but they were younger kids. It was just hitting everywhere, the folk music business and it was going to hit there, too. Well, actually, you might be interested in this. Uh, there was also an overlap because Felix Popolardi, you know who he was? He was sure. the producer for Cream and a, a great bass player. Damn it, I've been waiting. He played in my father's band for a Damn short it. time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what, your father's band? What was your father's the band? Fiend John Group. Oh, that was your father's? Oh, wow. And yeah, Popolardi, so yeah, well, he played with everybody. I mean, he went, you know, he got around. And then he stole some of my father's musicians for a project called The Devil's Anvil, which was supposed to be... Uh, uh, a, a Middle Eastern rock band or whatever. So there was a lot of cross pollinate. Steve Knight, who was the keyboard player from Mountain, also played. You gotta played write, write this book, man. This is uh, your book to write. <laughs> if, I may, if I may interject, Noam doesn't want to work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> he's got enough money and he wants to stay home with it. He's got young kids. He was a late in life father and that's his priority. Well, and I would I mean, buy I, it. My father used to take long, uh, uh, high uh, marijuana fueled road trips with uh, Leonard Cohen. He did. Yeah, yeah. Wow. My father knew Leonard Cohen very well, and uh, what was your dad? So, but that was, was the '60s at that time. Forbid me. What was your dad's name? What Menachem, is your Manny Dwarman? Menachem Dwarman. Oh yeah, I've heard of him. That's your yeah. dad, huh? That's my dad. Yeah. Very cool. So very there's cool. there's actually an un uninterrupted uninterrupted uh, line from th that first Fiend John all the way to the Comedy Cellar today. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I. So tell us, tell us about Dylan. What do you want to know? Well, what's what's the what's the thrust of your book about Dylan? Well, it's to try to put Dylan's work, his career, his music into the context of American culture, right? And uh, there are lots of books about Bob Dylan. There are lots of biographies about Bob Dylan. I started writing actually for him back around 2001. I was well, actually a little bit earlier. I was writing his liner notes and stuff for reasons wow. we can go into if you'd like. It was a lot of fun. And or one set of liner notes and then another set of liner notes and another set of liner notes. But anyway, I had all these essays I'd written about him and his music um, and I finished one book and I thought, you know, why don't I figure out a way to put all these books together or put all these essays together in a book? And that's that's how it came about. So it was really this funny 
mixture of fandom and criticism. I mean, like your dad, my dad had a bookshop on the corner of McDougal and 8th Street. So I grew up not Which too one? far. The 8th Street Bookshop, it was called. 8th Street Bookshop, yeah. Yeah, and it was- Why'd they it, call it that? Yeah, right. It was uh, not, not, not hard. It was better than Grants, too. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, so I was, I grew up in that milieu, much as, as you did. Um, and so I was always attracted to it. I, 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 I loved Dylan's music. But then I got this call to do these, this work for him. And then things kind of developed from there. How, how did that happen? You know, I've never, I've never really asked. I mean, I know <laughs> that I got, I got a phone call from a guy and he said, I want to, you know, you want to write this thing. I said, who are you? And he told me who he was. And I said, well, I never heard of you. And I, I, I hung up <laughs> and, and then he called me back saying, no, I'm, I'm for real. And he gave me reason to believe that he was for real. And I said, well, I'll do it, but you got to send me the record first because you know, it was a record I'd never heard. And if I didn't like it, it was going to be embarrassing. Right. Um, but it was the it was the album Love and Theft, which came out actually on September 11th, 2001. Wow. And, and yeah, which is weird in itself. But um, but I read, I, you know, they I, they sent it to me. I listened to it. I loved it. So I wrote this this thing that they were not going to do liner notes for that record. They were going to put them online. That was you know very early on in on liner notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On liner <laughs> notes. Exactly. Very good. Yeah. Very good. And uh, so that's where they appeared. And um, but then I kept on going. So it, it was a lot of fun, but, but I had all of this, I don't know, childhood memories were coming to the fore as I was doing this. The book in many ways is about my father as much as it is about, about Bob Dylan in a sort of you know, subterranean way. Um, it's about growing up around that music, but it was also to try and put his entire career, not just the early days, Blown in the Wind and the things that people know about mostly, but to put his entire career in the context of this very, very, uh, what, a complicated connection he has to all sorts of American culture. And I look at various points along the way in his career and try to delve into those as a way to try to excavate some of those connections. Can, can you explain to me, because I always wondered about Dylan. Mm -hmm. What is he saying? No, no. <laughs> hard to understand. There was always something that seemed so, for lack of a better word, crazy about the guy, the way he would turn his back to the audience, the way he would just do his songs in ways that were unrecognizable, perform yeah. songs in a way which he would almost know the audience wouldn't enjoy. Yeah. How, he, how do you explain all that? Well, I mean, you know, he, he, that isn't the way he always is. Sometimes he's very engaged. So it, it depends on what night you're getting a Bob Dylan concert these days. But, you know, over the course of his career, his connection to the audience has changed a lot. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to get into it, the whole career in the book. I mean, when he starts out, if you listen to, to, to recordings of him, um, either very, very early at places like the Fiend John and places like the, the Gaslight, he's very connected to the audience. I mean, he's doing a kind of Charlie Chaplin act on stage and he's making jokes and he's doing all kinds of stuff. Um, and then later on, um, he, he, you know, when he became a kind of cult figure in that scene before he became a real pop star, but you know, 1963, 64, you know, he talks to the audience all the time. He'll call out, you know, what do you want me to play? Or what do you, I won't play that or what have you. He'll go back and forth with the audience. It was pretty intimate. It was a bit more like a club than like a concert hall in, in that stage. And then, then something changed. And um, what changed in part was his view of himself as an artist. Um, he was not just a folk singer singing in the club. He was doing something that was bigger than that. And he was not going to just, he was going to perform it. And that was going to be that. He also got burned a lot. I mean, he, there were a lot of nasty things written about him. 
And I think he just wanted to have a kind of detachment from the audience. He didn't want to be, you know, feel as vulnerable in some ways to the audience as, as he might have been. So what a so coward. Start, yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, but that and, and that would continue because he kept, you know, he kept changing. He kept, you know, ticking off his own people, his own audience. I mean, you know, when he went gospel in the late 70s, a lot of people hated it, hated it. Um, but he wasn't going to be stopped. So in many ways, it's just him being, you know, the absolute individualist that he is. He is the artist that is not going to compromise with anybody or anything. And that shows up in his in his in his performances on stage. Um, yeah, I, I was just wondering what what uh, impact, you know, we talk a lot about the Beatles here and, and Noam's always talking about how his kids love the Beatles. They're young kids. Yeah. Is, is Dylan touching the 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 the. The younger generations, I in my mind, Dylan's like, you know, he, he doesn't have that. He, he's not. Uh, yeah. The young people like yourself love him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying, you, I don't know if you have children or grandchildren or. <laughs> well, I do. And they like him. They like him. But you're right. I mean, you know, he's a harder act than the Beatles. The Beatles are, you know, sweet, wonderful music that transcends time. Dylan's a different kind of artist. And it's not going to be, um, you know, uh, liked by, you know, have that kind of pop. Um, you know, popularity. Um, that that said, I mean, when I go to the concerts these days, there are a lot of younger people there. Uh, people even younger than you guys are there, uh -huh. and they're there. I saw them in college. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they're not dragged there by their parents. You know, as as you might expect. I mean, there's there. So there is a younger audience that gets hip to him. You either like him a lot or you can't stand him. You know, you either really get into him or you don't, and that's just true for younger people as it is for older people. I think that's true of all of us here too. I have, I have a question because <clears throat> I always think it's interesting that, that one way to measure music, almost like in a laboratory sense, is how it plays in countries that don't understand the lyrics. Yes. So like people love Bob Marley everywhere in the world. They have no idea what he's saying, right? Uh, they know uh, he's talking about pot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, the, and there's an interesting, they love rap music. Right. Even in other countries, they don't understand the, the music at all, the, the, the yeah. lyrical, thing, but, the, but the, the music and the attitude, whatever it is, still comes through. Right. How does Dylan play in areas where they don't speak English? He's all over the world. They're, he's played everywhere. He's very big in Europe. I mean, that's obvious. He's very, very big in Europe. England, sure. But, but, but in, in countries, France. But Germany, they probably speak English. Huge. He's even bigger in Japan. And they probably speak English in Japan as well. Um, um, Come gather around people. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, you know, but he just played China. And I don't think that, that, that necessarily there's a big Chinese, you know, English speaking community. Maybe there is. Yeah. Um, Bob Dylan, more than other artists, the lyrics count. I mean, the, the times they are a changing. The lyrics are everything in that song. I I'm think like, that's right. No, I think that's right. And I think enough people can speak the language, the English language that can get, you know, can, get, connect with it. So, yeah, I can't see going to Bob Dylan just for the just for the what the rhythm. Well, let, let me let me uh, just, you know, disagree with that for a second, only to say that when I was a young kid, uh -huh. I loved those Dylan melodies, times that are changing, oh, yeah. wind, whatever it is. And although I spoke the language, I had no idea of what he right. was talking about. I did not care a hoot, give a hoot about what the lyrics were. Yeah, you might be right about that. I guess that's right, because the yeah, music it's not a bad melody. The times they are changing, yeah, but the that's... lyrics are so profound. Yeah, it's, it's definitely another level of appreciation. But There's something he, he was that, yes, quite I, good I, simple melodies in a Hank Williams sort of sense, you know. Yeah, I, I, you got a point there, and also it's Dylan's sound. I mean, Dylan doesn't sound like anybody else, and it's the combination of the harp, which he plays less and less, but he used to play it a lot, and his voice, the whole thing. I mean, he is aware of that 
as an artist, he's not just, you know, he's not a, he's not writing poetry on paper and giving it to you. He's singing a song and that's a total performance. And that's about the sound as much as anything else. And a lot of people like the sound of like a Rolling Stone, whether you can, they can understand the words or not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think it's complex. All right. Um, What's the, I can, can you tell us a little bit about the exhibit in Oklahoma? Is subject change? No, it's not. Okay. No, it's about Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah, well, the Bob Dylan Center opened earlier this month um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is a story in itself. And um, it has two, it's a very big place. It has two levels to it. One is the downstairs, which is a kind of revolving exhibition, but dedicated to him and his life and his career, which I had a lot to do with designing and so forth, which was a lot mm -hmm. of fun for me. Um, and then concentrating on six songs that they've picked out, where they have a lot of stuff from the archive. Um, and then upstairs is a different level, which is d dedicated to creativity, kind of, um, you know, a, a, something that the entire museum is dedicated to, the entire center is dedicated to, um, but they do a lot of different ways to try to have you think about what creativity is. And then behind all of that is the archive, which is 100,000 items of Bob Dylan's stuff. And wow, 100,000. So that's the part that I find the most, you know, thrilling. A lot of toothpicks. Yeah. Yeah, right. All of that stuff. old, old, you know, the guy's a pack rat. So, you know, like old match sticks with, or not match sticks, but match covers. Keep, with, uh, he didn't keep Joan Baez around. <laughs> well, that's another matter. No people in his, in his archive, no people, but a lot of stuff. And some of it's, you know, just junk, but a lot of it isn't. You see how we write, this goes to the creativity point. You see how he wrote his songs, you know, and, and, he, there was this kind of thing about him being an artist who went into the studio saying, you know, performed very quickly and got out again. And there was a feeling that he was a very spontaneous kind of writer, but he's not at all. He's a very, very careful writer. And you see that in the manuscripts and a lot of the manuscripts are there. So that, you know, I mean, the guy's a Nobel laureate, there will be people studying his words, his music um, for a long time, I would imagine. You can really see, as I've never seen before, the creative process of this kind of artist, you know, laid out on paper, it's extraordinary. It's really nice that a historian living today thinks that there'll be a lot of time in the future for people to look back at. <laughs> yeah, right. He's well, an optimist. this is a talk about history, not politics. I mean, if you want to talk about politics, we'll go there, too. But, yeah, I I'm being hopeful. So, Mr. Wilentz, uh, Professor Wilentz. I think uh, Sean is fine. Sean, Sean is fine. Absolutely. I, so I could tell. <laughs> almost without getting into the specifics of it, but I would like to get just a little bit into specifics yeah. of it. You were quite brave, I thought, in um, the, the letter that you wrote, uh, pouring cold water on the 1619 right. project. Why, why was I brave? Because um, we're living at a time when uh, people will call for your head. Yes. And, okay, and, heads have, and heads have been served up for less. Yes. Well, so, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, so um, first of all, has, has it settled down for you? Settled down. I mean, you know, the 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 controversy settled down, so there's no not much of a controversy left. But I think that there's still a lot to be said about how do you go about writing history, and I'm still you know writing about that on the subjects that the project covered, but also other subjects. And you know, so in a sense, I'm still I'm still on that beat, if you will. Um, and you know, and I'm writing about anti-slavery, right? So you know, it's it's still part of what I'm thinking about. Um, I, I don't know what the outcome was. I mean, you know, the thing was so damn politicized right away. And, you know, a lot of right-wing opportunists came in and tried to attack it for, you know, good, good enough reasons, but they had political agenda behind it. My agenda was not 
political particularly was purely historical and i just wanted to make sure that the stuff got projected you know got told right i mean i was it was going to see history so poorly presented in a place like the new york times um, which is why we asked, asked for corrections you know we figured we figured they were going to make the corrections but they did not want to make the corrections um what kinds of corrections were you asking for oh i mean they have they had a, a couple of three sentences that are just false about the american revolution and slavery and you say three sentences okay that's true but if you get the american revolution wrong in a fundamental way you're getting a lot wrong right it's a it was a big deal and they didn't want to correct them even though what they was, were what was wrong about what they i mean they what said did they the think? american revolution was fought um the, uh, a, a primary cause of the american revolution was the desire to uh, preserve slavery which is just not true um, secondly, they said that the reason that was the case was because there was a great anti-slave trade movement in England before the revolution, which was scaring a lot of American slaveholders. There was no such movement in England before the, before the, the first anti-slavery movement was actually started in America, not in England. Um, and then there was another thing about how getting rid of the slave trade would screw up the entire colonial economy. So North and the South, they wanted to keep slavery because they didn't want to screw up the economy. Totally wrong. Just, just factually wrong. So these are, you know, these are mistakes that are not just mistakes. They, 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 they misstate a, shall we say, a very important event in American history, indeed in world history, the American Revolution, tying it to the preservation of slavery. Now, you know, there's a lot you can say about slavery in the American Revolution, and you know, the American it's a complicated story. Um, but to say that is to mistake both the history of slavery and the history of the American Revolution. You get them both wrong in one go. Um, so that that was one thing that was particularly one, one minor detail. But there were that's sentences crazy. that they got right, like more than three, probably. Yeah, but. probably. But that's not the point. The point is, if you're going to get the big stuff wrong, if you get the other stuff right, you know, so what? Right? How does something like The New York Times get so sloppy with something like that? You know, I, that's a question you'll really have to ask them. I Fair mean, enough. they 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 um, they did have fact checkers and there was one fact checker who wrote in some months later saying that she had been consulted by the Times on this very subject of the slavery in the American Revolution. And she told them they were full of it. This is terrible. They had to change it. And they didn't listen to her. So what does that wow. tell you? What does that tell you? That tells you that there was an agenda, I think, right. and that they wanted to get a certain way of thinking about American history down. And they were not going to take no for an answer, even before they got published. I mean, it would one thing I can see why they might have been a little embarrassed, you know, to, to, to correct themselves. You know, they have the Pulitzer Prizes to think about, all the rest of it. Maybe they didn't want to you know, respond. But before the fact, that's not good. That's not good. So my daughter, I have young children. My daughter is going to come home. Uh, she already has a little bit already with uh, being taught certain terrible things about American history and, and right. often from a point of view where the agenda is to try to really convince her that, uh, that America has a lot to be ashamed of, which it does. Right. What do I, what do I, what is the wisest way that I can explain to her how to put horrible things from the past in a fair perspective, both in terms of comparative history of other nations and just, and compare, and you know, how to judge people from a previous time and place. What you must've thought a lot about that question. Yeah. Well, there what, are two, what do I tell her? Yeah. There are two points to be made. The one is an historical point, which is that everything that's bad about America, there's always been a struggle over in America, right? We had slavery, but we also had anti-slavery, right? We had nativism, but we also had anti-nativism. There are times when one side wins and another side is not you know, prevalent, but it's always been a struggle. 
And that's the thing that I find so disturbing about the sort of 1619-ish or similar kinds of ways of looking at history. There's never a struggle. It's just one thing. America's bad or America's good. You know, you could do it either way. There's always been a fight. There's always been a conflict about all of these things that we take so seriously. So I would tell young people, look to the other side and see which Americans are also fighting the thing that you, you know, that we're saying is so terrible. You're always going to find it. And, and, and it's not simply racialized either. I mean, there are white people who are anti-slavery that, you know, it's, it's much more complicated, but there's always a struggle. There's always- Should, should John, I was reading recently, somebody tweeted about John Brown. I read a little bit about him. Should he be celebrated as an American hero or is he rightfully kind of- But well, get to the second part of your uh, point never, first. Right, right, yeah, right. well, I mean, John Brown's an interesting character we can talk about in a sec, but the second point that I wanted to make, and now I'm trying to remember what my second point was, um, is always to remember a certain amount of humility. Now, it's very hard to teach young people <laughs> humility. It's hard to teach old people humility, right? But you have to understand that 100 years from now, someone is going to be writing about you. Well, Mike Cabin doesn't think there's going to be anybody here in 100. Oh, I be. didn't say that. Just, if it's disastrous, it's disastrous. But let's, let's, be, let's be optimistic for a second, right? Sure. And let's assume that there is going to be somebody around. They're going to be writing about you in 100 years, right? They're not going to, you may not like what they're going to write and judging you for things that you don't feel particularly guilty about. Let's suppose, for example, how many of you got you four? How many of you eat hamburgers? No, okay. I do not eat hamburgers. Cheeseburgers only. <laughs> Cheeseburgers only. Fine. Do you want to be known, you know, a hundred years from now as a complete, you know, horror, you know, right up there with Hitler, right? That could happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm, what I'm saying is the posterity always makes. Well, I've, I've thought about that better. very question, and I'm, be, I'm going to say that that's not going to happen. But I hear what you're saying. And you know I'm, I'm optimistic saying? that no, it will. The, yeah. the judge, the, the, the future is always going to judge us by, by standards that are not our own. Is there anything else besides vegetarianism that you think might we might be judged negatively for? In, or well, I mean, all the clothes we're wearing that are made by in sweatshops in China, that's actually a that's, bad thing, right? Yeah. But, you know, but we're not thinking about that as a great moral crisis. A hundred years from now, they're going to be judging us on that basis. Be careful. Be careful what you say about the past because somebody's going to be saying it about you. And that's a kind of humility in the face of the past and the future that I think everybody has to inculcate now, has to cultivate. Uh, you know, that's hard to teach a young, uh, it's hard. I try to teach my graduate students that it's difficult, but I think it's an important lesson in life. Can we get yeah, to John I mean, Brown? I, I'd say like, I, I don't, I want them to teach my children everything true about American history, but boy, would I also like it if they would give my daughter an assignment to say, imagine yourself born in Virginia during the colonial times. Do you think you would know that slavery was wrong? Exactly. You, you, you know, like to, to, to start thinking what it means to be a total victim of being born into a particular system. I mean, the, the greatest geniuses, in my opinion, can see just above the heads of their peers. That's what makes them. They don't see Thank you, down Nam. from a thousand yeah. feet. They, they're, they're great because they see a little bit above the shoulders of their peers. Which uh, brings us to John. The average like person can't. You're making my point better than I just did. I mean, that's right. And that brings us to John Brown, who saw who who was fanatically abolitionist to the point where he tried to start a slave rebellion and several people ended up dying. And then uh, then he ended up being, I guess, uh, executed for treason against the state of Virginia. Cool. He is not considered a great hero. He's not on our money. We seldom talk about him. <laughs> You're right. 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 Um, and yet in a world where slavery is thought of as the ultimate sin in American history, why is he not an American hero? 
Well, I mean, in, at a certain level, he, he was on the right side. Let's put it that way. I mean, even Abraham Lincoln said that, you know, he stood up against slavery. We're, 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 we're for that. But in 1859, when he did his raid, there was a political movement, a large political movement called the Republican Party that was about to try to, you know, uh, stop the extension of slavery. It was going to do it politically within the, but it was an anti-slavery movement, right? That was there that was political, it was going to get something done. Right. All he did was make that movement, you know, make, make things more difficult for that movement, but much more difficult for that movement. Now, it prevailed in the end and it prevailed for all kinds of reasons that are that are complicated. But but Brown is a kind of, you know, uh, example, I think, of a person who was so driven by his own righteous thought that he forgot about politics altogether. And if you forget about politics altogether, you're probably going to do more damage than you are going to do good. So that's my take on it. I'm not going to condemn him as a, you know, as a, as a crazy man or, you know, he, he did what he did. He's like Bob um, Dylan. Didn't think about what the audience. <laughs> I, I'm going to run that one by his people, see what they, the John Brown, Bob Dylan connection. But I, I heard somebody on the radio that they make a point. I, I, I wonder if it's correct because I, it was an impressive point to me. He said that, look, all the European nations had slaves, but they kept their slaves in their colonial possessions. Well, we were they the colony. offshore. We were the colony. That's, That's right. So, so when they so when they separated from their possessions, it was easy. The slaves went with it, and it was a clean break. So we shouldn't be too highfalutin. You know, they shouldn't be too highfalutin in judging us. Look, here's another way of looking at it. Suppose we suppose the British had won the American Revolution, right? Or suppose that there never been an American Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think for one minute the British would have abolished slavery in 1833 when they did? They would have had the biggest cotton kingdoms, you know, slave. They would have been making money like crazy. They would have been a, a, a leviathan of slavery. Do you think they would have given that up? The American Revolution allowed them to become abolitionists in some ways. So, yeah, I don't think the British have, have anything to be proud of vis-a-vis um, -vis us. And as I say, the very first American, the very first anti-slavery movement in the world was founded in, in Philadelphia in 1775. So uh, we were, if anything, ahead of the game on all of that. Is there ever been anything like, Amer I know we people say all the time, well, slavery has existed throughout history and in all countries, but it seems like American slavery, has anything ever been like it in terms of, first of all, it was strict racial, it was along strictly racial yeah, lines and you had yeah. slaves living in cabins on plantations. Yeah. And is there anything ever been anywhere like quite like American slavery anywhere? Well, in the world? I, I would say Anglo-American slavery because the conditions in Barbados, you know, were, were, were worse um, than anything in the, in the, don't forget on the, on the American side, there was a, the, the population reproduced itself. Whereas in the tropics, the real tropics, where there's sugars being, built, you know, bring men in, work them to death and, you know, throw them in the ocean and that's the end of it. So, there, you know, it, was it the most brutal form of slavery in terms of just physical brutality? Probably not. Um, there were, um, yeah, but the slave codes are very harsh. I don't in any way want to minimize that. And the racial aspects of it were different compared to, say, Brazil. Portuguese slavery was different, and historians have written about, you know, why that's different. If you go to Portugal today, the race relations are very different than they are in the United States, um, because you have a sort of middle, you know, um, uh, what, uh, stratum of the population, which is, you know, neither black nor white. Um, so, yeah, I mean, American slavery was a, a terrible, terrible thing. Um, it was not the, the only terrible, terrible thing. And I think that to, how to put it, um, American slavery was 
reinvented at the beginning of the 19th century. Okay, it was reinvented because they discovered how do you, how you could cultivate cotton really cheaply thanks to the cotton gin, and 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 all of a sudden the United States with a, with slave labor was in charge of the most uh, uh, what what's the word um, in charge of the most um, money giving money making uh, lucrative the most luc thank you the most lucrative uh, agricultural commodity in the world right at the at the forefront of the industrial revolution with cotton. So they were going to be, so it was reborn and it was reborn in a very weird, nutty, crazy, let alone cruel way um, and racialized, completely racialized. That is American slavery. And, you know, you have to take it for what it is. It's a terrible stain on, uh, in, 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 uh, on world history. Um, that's no, just that's tell your said, daughter that. Yeah. I, I yeah. will tell my daughter that, but I, I, I want all that verbatim. That's I mean, I want. The, I, I'm, I want to tell my daughter, like I said, everything that's true. Yeah. I also wanted to tell her that she has very good reason to be very proud, not proud because she happened to be born here, but proud objectively of the history of the United States of America, which is uniquely, in my opinion, uniquely good as well to the world. And, and, and people fought it. You know, it's not as if slavery came and everybody went, hooray, hooray, we're all going to make a lot of money. You know, there was an anti-slavery movement and it was strong, it was powerful. Blacks and whites working together, all of that stuff. And I think that you can point with pride to the fact that the United States, even though it had this incredibly lucrative slave, had, you know, built a movement that the first mass political party against slavery was formed in the United States. So, you know, there's always good and bad in everything. And I think you have to, you know, convey that to your daughter as well. I mean, there's nothing pure. I I had made the point to somebody that if the if the history of the the Germans in the in the 30s and 40s was that the Nazis took over. Yeah. And then the German people rose up and defeated Nazism and hundreds of thousands of Germans died to defeat it. I don't think they'd be quite as ashamed of themselves. That's exactly right. And we did that. And we and we don't. And you can't say that we we have to be ashamed of the slavery and proud of the fact that we threw it off. We never talk about the fact we threw it off. That's my that's why I'm writing the book I'm writing. That's the point. And you and you can't do one without the other. Right. All right, sir, you're, you're, you're a fantastic guest. I, we're out of time. You oh, know, no. I'd, love have, oh, no. I'd love to have you on again now that you had a, hopefully a pleasant experience. I had a wonderful time. Have me back again. I loved it. You look loved a little, you look, you don't sound like, but you look a little bit like Shelby Foote. Oh, no. Oh, gee. I haven't got that beautiful. accent. I'm from, I'm from Brooklyn. I don't talk like him. Come on. I didn't say I talk like I said, you look a little bit oh, like okay. him. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Not talk. Yeah. Not talk. Well, it's, it's purely unintentional. I, it I'll may be the you. beard and it's the beard thing. You know, for the younger listeners, Shelby Foote was a Civil War historian who gained prominence in Ken Burns' Civil War series, which was 30 years ago. Hard to believe. Uh, but uh, Civil War a documentary. But then Shelby, and Shelby Foote was a great narrative historian. You know, he really wrote well. I mean, I don't agree with half of what he had to say, but, you know, you can put that aside. He was a really good writer. I wish you, I wrote as well as he did. He do did. you believe, as I do, that the best hope for America is as much interracial mating as possible? Absolutely. You do. Yeah. Absolutely. Are you doing it? At the moment, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always well, the future. No, I mean, Noam, God bless him. He is putting his money where his mouth is. <laughs> and his wife is Puerto Rican slash East Indian. I think it's look, I'm Walt Whit- with Walt Whitman on this. I think the future of America is Eros. It's sex. It's love. 
That's what's going to redeem this country. If anything's going to redeem this country. Were you so at Woodstock, sir? Wall on this. Huh? Were you at Woodstock? Because it should have I been. I actually was at Woodstock, but I left early because I thought Woodstock was a dirty lie. I have ah. a whole story about Woodstock. Woodstock sucked. It was a lie from ah. top to bottom. Well, as long as you didn't take the brown acid. I'm the only guy who went to Woodstock, right? And paid for a ticket, didn't get didn't get high, and didn't get laid. I, ah. All three. It was a d- disaster. So how can we and trust was, anything this man says? <laughs> <laughs> right. I was really stupid when I was 18, 17 years old. Whatever. Anyway. All right. So I have a hard out at nine o'clock and I, I have to go. So it's been it's been a pleasure. This is okay. really I'm sorry. I think it might be one of my favorite podcasts we've done in a very long well, time. Thank you. I, I'm very sorry I was so late. I it's just, okay. Nah. Thank you. I'm just glad it wasn't my John fault. Willens, ladies don't, and gentlemen. Stop living in the past. John thank you very much. Thank you. And, and thank fun. you, Mike Kaplan. Thank Good you. night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank Good night. you. Good night.